Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Danny Popescu. He's the founder and CEO of Harborfront Wealth Management. His success story has recently been punctuated by a nine-figure strategic investment in his firm. How he got there is some of what we get into in our conversation. He has since built Harborfront into one of the fastest growing independent wealth management firms in Canada and possibly North America. It's fascinating to note that his start in wealth management began as a bank teller. In our conversation, we discuss how he's building Harborfront, some of his philosophies on leadership, as well as his advice for building assets under management in a highly competitive industry. This is a great success story and interview. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team at Olympia strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Danny, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Corey. Danny, yeah, I'm glad we connected here. I'm glad that you're on the show. As I came to know, you've built Harborfront into quite the wealth management firm. And what I'd like to do is get a background on yourself, an intro, and then dive into that and dive into your career and what brought you here. So I think the best thing to do is to hand it over to you to start off. All right. Sure. I can give you a quick background of my career and why I embarked on this endeavor about 10 years ago. You know, my career started about 24 years ago. I started as a bank teller, not really knowing what I was going to do with my life. I had a friend that was a bank manager. She said, Hey, we're looking for bank tellers. Do you want to try that? And I was 22 years old, I believe. So I said, sure. And I enjoyed dealing with people. I enjoyed financial services. So I moved out of that after about nine months and I started doing mortgages and opening accounts and so forth. Then eventually I got into wealth management, left to go to another organization, built a practice, really got to understand that. And along the way in 2013, I ended up at a bank. I was at a previous company that was sold to the bank. And I thought I don't want to work at a bank for the rest of my life. So I'm going to go start my own company. And so we started Harborfront in 2013 with six employees including myself in one branch in Vancouver, Canada. And, you know, today we're over 250 employees and 28 branches across Canada. And I know you're going to ask about the Audax deal. So we have an enterprise value of close to half a billion dollars. So, you know, we've built a firm from a value of 10, $11 million to about a half a billion dollars in, in about nine years. And our goal is to take it to about a, a billion and a quarter to a billion and a half dollar enterprise value by 2027. Yeah. 
that's quite a remarkable growth story. An overnight success takes at least five years. But here you are about nine years in and just recently landed a huge investment, as I understand, through Odax. So I'd love to get into that. Take us a bit into the backstory there. I mean, you know, from starting out as a bank teller and building up through wealth management, when you started Harborfront, what were some of those struggles? I mean, it's not easy to build a book of clients, even when you have the backing of a bank, let alone going out there and building really from scratch. What were some of those steps it took to build up to where you're at now? Sure. So my background is an advisor. So when we started Harborfront, we started it with one client practice which was the book of business that I was running at the bank previously. So I brought that book of business over and that was run by these six employees that I mentioned. And those same six employees also, you know, were wearing a second set of hats, which was to to start Harborfront. And the goal was to grow the company through recruiting other advisors and then to offer something unique to clients, obviously, something that the street was missing in order to benefit people and also have the economic gains for the corporation. So there were indeed lots of struggles just starting a a firm, given that we were in a regulated industry. There were political issues about leaving an existing firm, then finding out that I was going to compete and start my own firm, you know, a bit of the Jerry Maguire kind of, you know, effect. So yeah, there's financial struggles. There's a lot of risk, a lot of time that goes. So for sure, there were a lot of considerations and a lot of risks, but it's paid off. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. I'm curious if you had any false starts. And the reason why I ask this is because oftentimes in those false starts, you know, opportunities come out of them. And that's part of building business. Yeah, I mean, you know, I had a lot of failures. I would say most of the failures, so to speak, or, you know, learning opportunities when it was really tough. It was more when when I was starting my own practice, you know, this is dating Mm -hmm. back 20 plus years ago, where you would try to get clients And it was very difficult, especially, you know, I was in my 20s at that time. So very difficult for people to trust you and hand over their life savings. So a lot of rejection, a lot of trial and error. So I think when you talk about false starts, so I struggled for the first little bit and I just wasn't getting the traction that I was hoping for. But indeed, you know, you start to realize if you fail, so to speak, again and again and again and again, you start to analyze why you're failing you know, what's specifically, what's the trend, what's happening that's resulting in this lack of success, at least many little successes along the way. And then you simply start to adapt and you make some changes. And all of a sudden, then we start seeing results and you double down on that. And, you know, incremental improvement, obviously, is really important in any business. So yeah, you know, starting in any sales role, you know, when you have to get in front of people and, you know, try to convince them that you've got something good to offer, it's not an easy task as many people in sales would know. And in fact, most salespeople do fail and you just have to, you know, stick through it. And the same thing, I guess, occurred at Harborfront in 2013 when we launched Harborfront. It was early on and people were saying, well, you know, you've just got one client practice. You've got six employees. Why do you really think you're going to build this big company that you can monetize mm. one? And, you know, there were a lot of advisors that they did not join us because they just didn't think that we would be able to succeed and and make our thesis a reality. Many did join. So Yeah. Take me down that path because that's a really interesting one. I think a lot of companies building businesses get to a point where they're kind of like, they want to level up, but they hit a point where the potential of leveling up is clients or customers looking at them saying, but you're not big enough for me, or you don't have the resources. So when... I think about investment advisors looking to switch. You know, I can imagine the industry is such that 
You've got independent advisors who want to be independent with the banks. And the banks are saying, here's your managed product. And they're looking, they're safe, they've got it, but they want something else. And they look to you and you're like, you'd be primed for our platform, but they look and go, but you don't have it. So in those kind of broad terms, how were you able to start to convince these brokers or these advisors to come over? Yeah. So the concerns that the advisors tend to have are not that you don't have the proper solutions. In fact, I believe we do have the solutions that the banks do not have. And I'm happy to go into that a little later because we're innovative and you know, good ideas, wealth management have always started with independence. The banks essentially just go and buy them later. You know, the banks aren't very innovative. They don't really start anything new. You know, they follow. They're definitely not leaders. And, you know, there's many examples of this, you know, and everything from ETFs to mutual funds to, you know, discount brokerage accounts. These all started with independent firms and then the banks either bought them or copied. So the why advisors, there are a couple of reasons why advisors don't make the shift. One is that they just simply don't know that the grass is indeed greener. And there's no Mm. question grass is greener, many independents than it is at the banks or other large conglomerates. And it's not just Harborfront. There are other independent dealers that life could be a lot better for advisors there. So some just simply don't know. They don't know what the differences are. The ones that do know, either because they've always known or because you've just educated them that that's the case, The majority of them still do not make a move, okay, because for two reasons, usually a fear and complacency or or a combination. So a lot of them are very fearful that their clients are not going to follow them, which is really unfortunate. And often those are insecurities that they have themselves. They're not actually reality. So when Mm. you speak to the banks or people not joining you, most advisors know, you know, once again, once you've talked to them that it would be better on this side. But now they realize, okay, but that means I have to leave. And what if my clients don't want to come because I no longer have that bank brand? I'm part of this brand that's independent. Maybe it's smaller. Maybe my clients might not feel that my dollars will be as as safe. So Mm. that's that's one of the challenges that you have to overcome. And, you know, our back office is a bank. All the dollars are held at a bank. So there really is no, no difference whatsoever. But that education needs to happen. And then advisors need to prepare to provide that education to their clients. So that's one of the reasons why they don't make a move. Another one is complacency. You know, they realize, well, this might be a little bit of work. You know, I have to tell all my clients. I have to, you know, repaper every account and go through that. And life is pretty good. And, you know, I'm golfing every afternoon, right? So yeah, yeah. you get a little bit of that. You do get complacent people that have established a decent business and they're not as ambitious as perhaps they should be. So those are some of the challenges that you deal with. And that's not new and it's not unique to us. And and we will continue to see that. But for people that are truly client focused, they should make a change. So there's no question that independent shops are better for clients. So one of the things that I would argue, and I try to be very respectful about this, but if you know that there are better solutions for your clients at a different institution, and you're a fiduciary, mm. don't you have an obligation to actually do the uncomfortable, make that move because it's in the right interest of your clients. Yeah. So put their interests in front of yours. And you know, given the types of investment solutions that we offer, and we're not alone, but we were definitely the first, and some are starting to take notice. I do believe that advisors need to be pounding the pavement a little bit more and getting their institutions to make some changes. But with big conglomerates, it's just a very slow process. 
Yeah. Talk to me about innovation in the wealth management sector, because I know that you've come at this differently. I think that you look well beyond just the public capital markets. What is innovation and how did you approach that in what could be seen as a pretty, you know, standardized world? Yeah. I mean, you know, innovation has always existed in this industry and we are where we are today because of, you know, things that were invented, for lack of a better word, by other entrepreneurs, other visionaries in the past. What we've done is we've taken investments that are typically more suited for institutions and ultra high net worth families and package them in such a way so that they are more suitable for retail investors that might have a $500,000 account to a five, $10, $20 million account. So anyway, you know, even as low as a $200,000 account, these individuals can be buying these securities which is really important. And to give you a bit more background there is, unfortunately, in Canada, and, and I think, you know, it's not that much different in the US, but when you look at wealth management, the knee-jerk reaction or the perception is that that means you're managing your money in the stock market and the bond market. You're either doing that by buying stocks and bonds, or you're buying ETFs and mutual funds, which hold stocks and bonds. And most people believe that that is how you invest money. But there are many other asset classes out there. You know, real estate is one that we're familiar with. But just like you can invest in businesses that are traded on an open market, you can invest in businesses that are not traded on an open market, you know, businesses that are private. Harborfront, for example, is a private company, and we don't have any interest in taking that company public. And same thing with credit. You know, when you have a bond, when you purchase a bond, you're essentially lending somebody money, whether it's an, a government or a corporation, you could do that privately as well. There are mortgages, there's collector cars, there's, you know, the list goes on. I'm not suggesting yep. that every retail investor goes into that, but stocks and bonds are just two of many different types of asset classes. And so what we've tried to do is democratize access to private equity, private credit, and private real estate. And we believe we've truly done that through this architecting to improve, you know, some of the negative features of these securities or these obstacles that exist, we've tried to remove those or, or simply minimize in order to provide better access for retail investors. I want you to take me further down that path of being able to package these up. And a few things come to mind. Uh, I came across a website, the name skips my mind, Modern Art or something like this, where you as a retail investor can go buy and participate in the ownership of world-class one-off art. You want to own a, a share in a Monet, they've packaged up a Monet painting, which you can buy, you know, $35 million painting and I own shares in it kind of thing. Not that I do, but that's the example. Or I had a gentleman named Cormac Kinney on the, the podcast, really fascinating his approach to the world of diamonds and looking at financializing diamonds the same way we have gold bars. His view was, why can we not have diamond bars? And fascinating mm -hmm. approach there. But again, packaged it up differently. So when you look at a private equity deal or a private equity, excuse me, a private debt deal as an asset class, how are you able to architect and, and break this down such that retail with a quarter million dollar account can participate and it's economically feasible? Sure. So let's take private equity first, because that's probably one of the easier ones to explain. So private equity essentially is just simply investing in businesses that are not traded at an open market, okay? They're private businesses. And typically, a private equity fund might have, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 different 
private companies and they're typically closed-ended. Once they've raised X amount of capital, then they'll go on to their next fund. The challenge here is that sometimes the minimum investment amounts required could be as high as $10 million to get into that one fund. You might only have 10 or 15 private companies in there. And you have to be prepared to tie up your money for at least five years, sometimes a lot longer. So that's just not something that's suitable for the average Canadian. And so what we've done is we've said, okay, well, look, you know, it's important for our clients to have access to private equity, but they simply cannot buy this way. So for one, by pooling capital together, you get over those minimum investment requirements. So once you raise, you know, a couple hundred million dollars or more, you can buy multiple of those private equity funds. So we don't do any of the due diligence of underlying deals ourselves, mm. but we have relationships with managers and we have an entire due diligence team, both internally and externally, where we shop managers and some we hire, some we don't. And we put together a pool of capital and with some creative strategies in there, some laddering and so forth, we can create liquidity. So because okay. there's so much in there and some are being liquidated, there is a regular stream of cash that's coming out. So we can take these investments that are typically illiquid. Lots of private equity pools are not eligible in registered plans. Okay. And so our private equity pool is available through to registered accounts. And then furthermore, some of the other challenges is that in Canada, the way that regulators have these structured is it's very difficult for everybody to get into these types of securities unless they have a certain investor accreditation. So yeah. what we've done through portfolio managers, either ones that are directly seeing clients or even non-client facing portfolio managers, we have certain accounts that our clients can get involved in where they can hold these types of securities, even if they are not accredited investors. Gotcha. So all of these little ingredients, essentially, that have created that liquidity. And that's on the private equity side. The structure with private credit and our private real estate pool, they're similar. So they're just, they're extremely well diversified. There are over 50 to 60 sub-advisors between all three of them, different types of asset classes, different liquidity schedules. So you're really taking an investment that is typically, as I said, illiquid, maybe you might not have sufficient diversification, and you're able to provide these investments for pretty much any client of our firm yeah, yeah. else that we put in place. So in building this out and taking this approach and packaging up effectively private equity or, or deals that are more accessible, you've obviously been able to grow your assets under management and your profile such that you were able to do this deal with Odax. And you know, I mean, it's given you a half billion dollar valuation or enterprise value, which is super remarkable, right? Can you take us behind how that deal came to be? Because I would imagine for you as an entrepreneur, that was a major milestone in your career. Take us behind that deal. Sure. You know, we've been getting phone calls to be acquired, you know, by interested parties since we started the company. And typically, you know, you don't respond to any of those emails or any of the calls and, and so on. So we weren't looking to raise any capital. We weren't looking to bring on a partner, whether private equity or strategic or, or whatever. I got approached by an investment banker and it was actually a little bit of a fluke. I got approached by an investment banker from Raymond James, Canada, and we were actually looking to increase our business development personnel. So I thought, oh, I'm going to chat with this individual because maybe we might be able to hire him. 
So okay. my probation, you know, was actually a little bit different, but I got chatting with him. And, you know, one of the things that we decided was going through a process and getting some offers, even if we don't bring on a partner, even just getting some offers, it's going to validate our valuation. So one mm. of the issues that you have when you're bringing on advisors is you're saying to them, hey, come over because we're going to give you some cash and we're going to give you some equity. The cash is pretty easy to understand. But sometimes they question, you know, the valuation metrics that are used in private companies. And so the best way to establish what something is worth is if someone's going to give you that money for it. And as it turns out, you know, we got far more money for our company than the conservative valuation that we were using internally. So again, the main driver was to have that validation to say to the industry, you know, because a lot of advisors, sometimes they can't think beyond their practices. And they don't realize that they're so valuable by being the key to those relationships that they can do more than just manage a practice. They can own the actual dealership and there's financial value there. They mm. can own a U.S. arm. They can own, you know, auxiliary businesses. They can own an asset management company. And we have all those businesses under our parent company, which we're all common shareholders of. So again, just getting that validation, we thought, hey, it's important to go through this exercise. And then we later realized that we actually should do a deal. We should do a deal because we're going to get a lot of publicity because of it. And that's really going to be a catalyst for further growth. And we were right. And we didn't do the deal because we needed money. A lot of companies that raise capital, they raise capital so that they can reinvest back in the business. Every single dollar that was raised was actually paid out to shareholders. There was yeah. nothing in the company. Nothing had to go back in. And in fact, we did the deal on a cash-free basis. So we also paid out a really large dividend. So what this did is it demonstrated to advisors on the street, hey, this is real. This is not just theoretical. This works. I need to go and join Harborfront. And they are doing it better than the competition because the competitions, you know, especially when you compare us to public companies, there's so many public companies out there. You can find out what they're worth today by just, you know, going to Bloomberg or whatever it might be. You know what their assets are. So you can do the calculation and you see that their value, you know, on a per dollar basis is significantly lower than us. So people are paying attention saying, hey, these guys are doing something right. I need to find out more. And it's worked out. Our recruiting has just gone through the roof and we're, we, you know we've got lots of acquisitions that we're looking at making right now you know a couple we're, we're quite close on so it was a good idea in the end yeah it sounds like more than just the capital there's a lot more strategy to it and it's playing out now in the form of recruiting and it's playing out now in the form of the publicity that's come from it so that's pretty interesting to hear and how about for you as an entrepreneur from a an emotional side going through that there had to be some times, right? Like 11th hour, you're about to sign or you're waiting to sign and there's a holdup. There's got to be something there that had you perhaps losing a little sleep. You're right. You're right. And so I tend to be a pragmatic person. And when we first, you know, you always worry about control. You always worry about, hey, is somebody going to come in here and tell me how to run my business when I know it's been doing extremely well. And I think that's a fear that a lot of entrepreneurs have. And, you know, regardless of the amount of equity that you sell, you know, when you've got an investor in there, they're always in the one to know what's going on. And you want to make sure that they're not negatively influencing the company. Uh, so that's, so, so that's always in the back of your mind. When we were close to doing a deal, you know, when we eventually signed a letter of intent, 
that was definitely an emotional time. And that's when you realized, okay, you know, we're going to do this. We're bringing on a partner, you know, things are going to change. But it was the right thing to do. And we went ahead with it. And I, and I don't regret it. And our partners have been more than fantastic. Happy to speak about that. But yes, for sure, you are correct that there was an emotional time because, you know, you build this thing up and, you know, you, you, but you just need to, it's no different than hiring employees. You know, you hire good people that are there to fill the gaps that you have. And same thing with the partnership. You know, what we looked was how could this partnership accelerate our growth? And there's a risk to bring in on a partner, of course. There's a risk to bring in on an employee, but you just have to do your due diligence and, you know, try to manage your risk as much as possible. And yeah, but indeed, you're correct. It, yeah, it, it, I want to understand and perhaps get some advice for other CEOs going through this kind of process. When you're working with the people around you, you have some very intelligent people around you. How do you balance that advice that's coming from them? And I was illustrating that like when you have a banker telling you everything you want to hear because, you know, they want to be a partner, but they also want their fee. And then you might have some others saying, you know, oh, but what about this? And what about this? This is good. This is bad. How did you balance all of that advice and ultimately get the deal across the line? Yeah, I mean, you know, they have both external and internal advisors. So you're right. We had the investment banker. We had our key legal firm. We had accounting firms. There were a lot of different people that worked on the deal. At one point, we estimated that over 150 people worked on the deal, external consultants primarily for both Audax and ourselves. It was definitely a process. With respect to, you know, the advice that I was receiving or, or my team, a lot of it was just collaboration and some stuff is obvious. And then when it isn't, you talk about it and the right answer tends to just surface. So yeah, you know, you've got your close group of people, you just use your best judgment. So, you know, I don't think there was, it's no different than the strategy in, in running your business. You know, you just, you just make whatever call you think is the appropriate call. Gotcha. 150 people on a deal. Like it just, it's crazy. I remember back in my early days when doing some M&A work and like the CCC train, right? Like in the emails, the number of people who would be in was just, it was crazy. I want to talk about relationship development. And when you were able to build your book, how were you able to constantly level up? And perhaps this is a bit of advice for other advisors and the advisors that you have. How were you able to level up and bring in bigger and bigger clients and ultimately increase your assets under management? Sure. So I guess, yeah, talking back, you know, I'm going back 20 years now, you know, the first half of my career, I was an advisor, the balance half, I'm building this firm. So I'm no longer seeing clients. So hopefully some of my comments aren't stale. I do know what our advisors are doing today. First, the hard part is finding clients. So you need to know where to look. And then when you find them, hopefully you have a good value proposition so that you could actually help them. And it's a very competitive industry because typically when you win a client, you're taking that client from someone else. So you're winning that client and someone is losing that client. Not always, but typically. And that's not an easy thing to do. So, you know, building a solid wealth management practice, there's not, you know, one item that you have to do correct. There are multiple, you know, it's the various ingredients that will make that recipe. So it's a combination of obviously, you know, hard work and determination. You have to have technical skills. You have to have good communication skills, good business skills. You've got to have a good team around you. And hopefully you're constantly evolving. 
And so, you know, where are you looking for these clients? You know, and some advisors are more fortunate that they have a good network of people, whether it's through family or, and some are not, and they need to pound the pavement and spend a lot of time and, and money on marketing. So it can be somewhat situational as well. But, you know, the key is to first figure out, hey, where can I find wealthier people? How do I get in front of them? And then, you know, what is my value proposition? And then do I have a process in place to actually tie all that together and convert this prospective client into a client and then keep them there for a long period of time? And then if the relationship is good, then hopefully I will get referrals from this individual. So incremental improvement. So it's not one thing that I would point out and say, hey, if you do this, you're going to succeed. It's Mm -hmm. a lot of different things that all have to go well in order for that's why you see, you know, you've got advisors with books of 10, 15 $20 $20 billion is more common in the US. And then you've got a lot of advisors with very small books. You know, we work primarily with established teams that already them coming to us will, you know, I think our average book size is about 200 million, something to, to that effect. So we want them to already be established before they come to us. We don't have a rookie program, but mm. yeah, it is for sure a process. Mm. So there's not a simple answer that I can give you. Yeah. When you look at those who run 10, $20 billion books, like like massive amounts of money, or, you know, or even say, you know, from a billion up, what would you say is the common characteristic of them that you've seen? Yeah. I mean, typically they're dealing with ultra high net worth clients and it could be a combination of wealthy families and also institutions. Mm. You're not going to build a billion dollar practice with hundred thousand dollar account sizes. It's just impossible. Yeah. So, you know, and again, typically they're now they may have started in a different place and they kept maturing and gaining more skills that they've landed in those places. But typically um, it's so again, it's it's not one skill set or one talent. I would say that there are multiple talents and multiple reasons why those people are successful. I wouldn't point it to one. So again, it's a combination of good technical skills good sales skills and, you know, interpersonal skills, very strong organizational skills, you know, good work ethic. You need all of those various things to make that happen. If one is missing, you know, one of those items is usually sufficient for the whole thing to fall apart. It's not that you're going to get 75% of the way there. You really need those ingredients to make it work. When it comes to building business and, you know, kind of that mentorship piece, do you have mentors? Do you have people you look to or you admire? I do. I do have people that I look to and I admire. I don't have any one particular individual that I try to, you know, to follow, so to speak. But, you know, you know, I read and I try to pick up little bits and pieces from what different people are doing. <clears throat> and it could be in any type of industry. Early on in my career, when I was building a practice, there was an individual that had a business model that I thought was quite interesting. And he was very marketing focused which I needed to be because I didn't have any contacts. So I didn't communicate with them very often. I, you know, I didn't knock on the door and say, hey, can you mentor me? That wasn't the approach, but I sort of just watched them from afar mm. and you know, try to mimic as much as I could. And I think that had a positive impact on my business. And since then, I haven't really had any other mentors in the traditional sense, but I am part of a CEO group with CEOs in different types of industries. As I mentioned, I try to get a lot from whatever it is that I'm reading every day. 
I learned through conversations like this, you know, and, and you learn, I think, think where you learn the most is by listening to your people, your employees and your customers, you know, what is it that they need regardless of, you know, what, what are their fears? What are their needs? And so, yeah, not, you know, a specific mentor in the traditional sense. It sounds like the mentorship, the guidance for you has come through listening and just picking up on, you know, little signals here and there. What's this? What's okay. I see that model there and, or I'm hearing this repeatedly. And that's kind of been a guiding factor for you. When it comes to reading, I'm curious, what do you read? What's been most influential for you? Well, so, the, you know, today I read mostly the business news, okay. as, but, you know, what are some of the more influential books? I mean, there are many. I think one of the books that really changed my view, you know, some 25 years ago, and, and it might be a simple book, but Robert Kiyosaki, his book called Cashflow Quadrants. I read all his books. I think he had around six yeah. or seven Cash flow quadrants in particular really put things into perspective for me about the difference between being self-employed and owning a business and then being an investor. So that was really interesting. You know, I, I just want to reflect on that. You have built a very notable business here, you and your team. And to refer to Robert Kiyosaki's book, Cash Flow Quadrants, or I think the other one was Rich Dad Poor Dad. I did read that one too, but Cash Flow Quadrant was the second one, and I thought that that was actually far better. Okay, at least more. Well, me. you know, you you look and you'd say those books are found squarely in the self help section and are there to like collect dust. Like, what good are they? And I would argue that what was in I, when I read Think and Grow Rich and sounds like Cash Flow Quadrants, the same thing. It's like this is the framework. This is the model of how you build wealth. Now go apply it, right? And so, you know, I think that there's a wrap there that it's a get rich, self help kind of approach. But no, it's not. So it's interesting to hear you say that. Yeah, I think the execution is the other aspect of it because if I understand what you're saying is anyone can go and read those books, but they don't necessarily act on them. Or I, I think part of it is. And I've noticed this with advisors when I've done coaching sessions is they get really excited, but then a week goes by and they've forgotten everything yeah. that I've said and they just go back and, and uh, revert back to the mean. And, and I think that's human nature. So that probably happens with a lot of people that read these books or go to these seminars and so on. They don't apply a lot of it. And I think a lot of these places know that. And that's often why they're comfortable in sharing all these things, because they know most people aren't willing to do anything with that information, which is which is a real shame. You know, that's true. And I think we can all get wrapped up in that. And I mean, I just I've been reflecting on it for myself, something that I've been approaching and applying new, you know, things that I've been learning. One is not reading every book under the sun. I think when you overread, it's almost like you're just trying to satisfy yourself with a form of entertainment versus reading some selective books. And then I started viewing the application of these things over a long term and committing myself and saying, okay, this isn't going to be overnight. So don't be upset if it doesn't change overnight. And it's been a really interesting kind of paradigm shift for myself, thinking in years and not weeks. And I think that perhaps we can all you know, fall victim to thinking far too short term. Sure. Yeah, no. And and I think that patience is really important because if you get frustrated that you're not getting the results that you want immediately, that's not always a recipe for success either. Yeah. I'm curious with where you're at now, what are you most proud of in your career? Hard question. I would say there are a couple things. I won't be doing this forever. I'm going to retire just like every other human being at some point, not anytime soon, but at some point. And I'm proud that I can look back one day and I, I truly believe that our company has really paved the way 
for what I call retail friendly private investment solutions, you know, really bringing this in to the retail investor. Mm. And so I know, you know, there will come a time where what we're doing will be offered at your corner bank. And I truly believe that we pioneered this. So that's something that I'm that I'm quite proud of. You know, we're changing the lives of not just our clients, but you know, we're influencing change in the industry, which will then change the lives of every retail investor, you know, that starts to adopt some of these things and in, in, in what they're doing day to day. So I'm definitely proud of that. I'm also proud of the impact that we've had in the lives of our advisors. So not just the clients, because advisors work really hard and it's a difficult, it's a difficult gig. And, you know, we're teaching them how to bring that happiness back. Hmm. Uh, you know, we work for an independent firm. It very much is a family culture. Everyone shares, they're all partners in the organization. And then they can get rewarded economically for, you know, all their efforts through some form of monetization, which again, we've done one round now and eventually we'll do another one. So I think that's really maybe the theme is the impact that we're making in people's lives, whether it's clients or advisors and our employees as well. You know, we've had a, we have a very attractive stock option program now. So we really want everybody, all the stakeholders to benefit. I really like that. I mean, it's one, you don't say my company, which I tend to get bothered by people who say that, you know, my company, my employees, and this is my personal views here, but you say our company, and it sounds like you've been able to build a structure that everyone gets rewarded. You know, everyone gets, you know, papered up to a degree and participates in the ups and downs. And I think that's really powerful. That's how you build a real strong culture, in my opinion. And so it's neat to hear that. And I have to ask the, the converse question to this is, is, what are you least proud of? You know, what have we done that we're least proud of? That's a hard one. I mean, you know, I'm not overly proud of where our industry is today. Mm. You know, maybe I can speak to that. I think we're very behind. I think there's too much bureaucracy in our industry. I think, unfortunately, you know, the big conglomerates putting the client first isn't necessarily what's happening. You know, putting shareholders first is what's happening by, you know, particularly the, some of the bank home firms and so on. And, and, you know, and you see a lot of this, they're trying, everyone's trying to improve things, but the change is very slow when it comes to improving things from consumers. So you know, if you're putting me on the spot here, Corey, I, I would say- I'm trying that, to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and I never want to say anything negative about anyone, but one of the reasons people have this Jerry Maguire kind of, uh, we talked about that at the beginning, is to make a difference and make change. So you, you know, you leave the old place that you're at because you don't like certain things. Hmm. So you've gone somewhere else so that you can improve on some of the issues. And there's no question that advisors are quite disenchanted at most of the large conglomerates, which is why you're seeing this, you know, renaissance in the independent space in Canada. And it's definitely happening in the US. So yeah, hmm. it's interesting. Institutionalization, we like to call it. It's not a good thing for people, whether that be clients or advisors or employees. Yeah, perhaps this is a stretch here. And I am interested to know your feedback on it. But you know, we've even seen this with globalization. And the model of globalization to and standardization and try to just, you know, get the most amount of efficiency out of everything. And that's starting to break apart. 
And we're now seeing more you know, nationalization and independence coming back into industry. And so you know, I've been a critic as well of the large banks where it's just managed over, for retail investors and, and even you know, potentially high net worth. You've got managed product, which is heavily feed, which is all skewed to the bank's interests. And for advisors and brokers, I mean, that's what they're getting forced to sell. And I can see how you'd become, if you're in the industry, disenchanted by that. And I can also, now I'm you know, going deep on a philosophy here, but I can see how it starts to hurt our entrepreneurial potential as a country when the big banks have the majority assets and advisors don't have the ability to go help fund innovation and potential and purpose within our economy. And so... I would agree with you, but perhaps I've taken it a step further. I think you're right, actually. And, and particularly in Canada, the large majority of the wealth, I don't have the exact stats, you know, the banks do control the large majority of the wealth. And if you think about it, you know, banks started as depository and lending institutions. They didn't manage money. They didn't manage investments. They got into that game way later. And so, but I think we're a little bit guilty of that as Canadians, the fact that we're so conservative in nature and we believe that our money needs to be held at a bank. My understanding is that we're the only country in the world where such a large amount of the dollars that the investment dollars are held through brokerage institutions that are owned by banks. No other country in the world is in that situation. They go you know, to investment institutions rather than to banks. So perhaps, you know, we're getting a little bit, you know, deep here, but perhaps it's our own fault as mm. consumers for allowing that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Not sure. Uh, I hear what you're saying there. I am looking. I'm just, I want to be respectful of time. We've ripped through an hour. We've had a couple of glitches, technical glitches, but that's nothing we can't take care of. Any final thoughts for the audience being CEOs, executives, managers, as well as investment advisors, because I'm sure we'll have some will listen to this. Yeah. Any final thoughts for the audience? Okay. Well, for you know, business in general, I mean, if you're wondering, you know, how do you succeed in business or again, you know, it's a number of different things, but I think being humble, being yourself is really important. You can't do anything big on your own. Very, very difficult. And in, in my view, you need to surround yourself with good people and in order, it's so difficult to attract people today, as we all know. So, you know, a solid team is just huge. So, and attract that team, not, you know, outside of the economic component of it is just, you know, be humble and be vulnerable and be yourself. And people will want to be around you and will share in your vision. So that's something that's really worked for me, I think, is, you know, being respectful to my people and being upfront that I don't have all the answers. I don't know everything. It's all collaboration. So I guess that would be more just general thoughts with respect to for advisors. You know, I would just maybe say every day when you get up and you go to the office, try to do something different, try to do something that you didn't do yesterday. And if you apply that every day, something harder, you know, something out of your comfort zone, I think that that could have a big impact. Wow. Yeah. You know, in, in hearing say that, you know, being uncomfortable for advisors, I mean, I started my career early uh, working for a broker team at Scotia McLeod and was dialing for dollars, picking up the phone, phoning from a, you know, a physical phone book, you know, the country club phone books. And <laughs> I would tell myself one more dial, one more dial. And, sure. you know, that's that putting yourself out there doing something uncomfortable. And perhaps that's how 
well, that's the recipe to success. So, Danny, thank you very much. I'm glad we could connect here and thanks for sharing your experience. Thank you, Corey. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.